You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. I know originally we were supposed to have Ryan Grimm on to talk about his new book, We've Got People, but unfortunately, because of scheduling conflicts, And also because we are now funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we need to have Bill and Melinda Gates' friend Ram on in order to fulfill our terms of our contract. Hello, Ram. Mother All of my enemies are dead. Nat Landau, dead. Cliff Jackson, dead. suckers. So what do you think about the left? I sent those suckers a dead fish because they're fucking cowards. He's a fucking mother mother shit ass sucker sucker. By the way, um, we're just kidding. We don't have any money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but we do want to keep our content free and uncensored. So if you don't want to hear future episodes with Ram Emanuel swearing for. 45 whole minutes, please go to historically.substack.com and become a subscriber. Okay, so Ryan, um, I was reading your book and it was really hard for me to like not scream out at the end of every page. So why don't we start by what motivated you to write your book? I finally, you know, decided to pull a trigger on it the day after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her set victory. On, it was basically on my way back from the Bronx to D.C. I'd been kicking the idea of a book on the left and the Democratic Party around for 10 years or so, but there had never really been, I felt, enough energy on the left to stand up a protagonist. You know, when Bernie Sanders ran for president, that really brought in a lot of people to the system that had, you know, and paying attention to politics that hadn't been before. And that was that was hopeful and when you know after trump was elected so many people got fired up and, and started getting involved that too was hopeful but i i wasn't sure of you know was is bernie just a you know was he a, a one time phenomenon or is it a, a movement that's going to be here to stay so that it could stand up a narrative and it kind of aoc's winning her election really i think took the kind of sanders phenomenon to another level and said, oh, this is now just Bernie Sanders. This, is, this has the potential to be a movement. I agree with you. Since we're a history podcast, can we begin a little bit with history? Like, can you explain why did the Democratic Party move to the right in the 80s and 90s? Right. Speaking of history, like, as you notice, the book starts in like the 1840s. And an earlier version of the book, just ran all the way through the rest of the 19th century and up through the early 20th century. But I ended up cutting that 60, 70, 80 years just for the, the interest of getting into the more modern story and, and you know, and starting more in the, the 70s and 80s. But you had a number of different things going on. You had the civil rights era and you had the you know, women's liberation movement, both winning significant victories in the 60s and 70s. You have organized labor remaining strong but you also have, because of the 30 years of kind of unchecked growth coming out of World War II, you start having this intense kind of global capital accumulation and, and capital starts becoming a, you know, a force that it has to be reckoned with in ways that it, 
that it didn't in the past. But within that, it's it's easy to look at history as kind of preordained kind of forces just pushing things in a certain direction. But there are decisions that people make and decisions that, that groups of people make that shift and change where that history might be heading. And the way that Democrats go about nominating presidential candidates, for instance, was one of the consequential moments. In 1976, you had a lot of progressive people running for the, the presidential nomination, and you had a lot of people running in general because it was a year that Democrats expected that whoever won the Democratic nomination would win the White House, and that, that turned out to be accurate. But because so many people were splitting the left vote, it allowed Jimmy Carter to come in and pick up, you know, 28% in Iowa, 28% in New Hampshire, and just, you know, win primaries in the way that Donald Trump was winning them in the beginning with this rump of mostly conservative Democrats voting for the candidate who was the kind of the conservative in the race. So he's very strangely, he had Hunter S. Thompson wrote this very flattering profile of him saying that he was like the man with more of the moral rectitude that the country needed. A strange turn of events that, that really boosted him in a huge way. His Rolling Stone at the time was huge, as was Hunter Thompson. And so you have Jimmy Carter end up with about 40% of the vote by the end, and that winds up being enough to win the nomination. And so as president, you know, he's known as a very liberal post-president, but he was not a liberal president. He put solar panels on the White House roof, but that was about it. Foreign policy, he had a lot of significant victories that he deserves credit for. But on the domestic front, he was a pioneer of deregulation before Reagan. And he was hostile to the labor movement in a way that, you know, that helped break apart the union support for Democrats and kind of paved the way for uh, the, the Reagan Democrats that we saw in the 1980 and, and, and throughout the 80s and 90s. And because he didn't deliver on what people were demanding at the time, they're willing to take a chance on this radical C-list actor, Ronald Reagan. And so because then the centrists of the party didn't want to acknowledge that their centrism had cost them the White House, they said, well, it's the excesses of the 70s, abortion, acid, amnesty, you know, Democrats are considered to be too liberal by the American public. And so, you know, we need to go right. And more importantly, one of the reasons that we lost, or the main reason we lost, Democrats argued, uh, was because they were outspent and outgunned and outmaneuvered by Republicans. And so, therefore, we need to go to corporate America. We need to up our uh, fundraising, corporate fundraising capacity, and we need to spend that on, you know, sophisticated 30-second ads like the Republicans did. And if you do that, you forswear a populist progressive politics. You can't have those two things going together. Exactly. Like, from what I was reading in another book, this has led the Democrats to go into some kind of value-neutral governance, where they obsess about process, but don't actually stand for substance. But my second question is, why are they obsessed about the 1972 convention? It seems like they always still hold that up as a shield, and they don't want to acknowledge all the other cases where that logic has failed. So what's their obsession with 1972? Well, they want an example where full-on the liberal won the nomination and then got beaten so that they can argue that you just can't do that anymore. 
So it's just very selective reasons. Ryan, I was wondering if you could talk about Jesse Jackson's campaign and how that was such a seminal moment, how that really kind of laid the groundwork in a lot of ways for Bernie's later run. Yeah, and I, I wanted to highlight that because it's been so lost to history, even though it was you know, so relatively recent. In 1988, after running in 84 and running a surprisingly kind of close race, Jackson ran a much more serious race with his full structure. Staff got in early enough for it to matter. And after about three dozen primaries and caucuses, he was just one of three serious candidates left in the race, Dick Gebhardt, Michael Dukakis, and him heading into the Michigan primary. And both Gebhardt and Dukakis badly felt that they needed to win Michigan. Instead, Jackson comes out with this startling upset. Yay, and Michigan! Yeah, Michigan's so crazy. I love it. Um, <laughs> and so all of a sudden, they're now like 37 races in, and he's in a delegate tie with Michael Dukakis. And he has the momentum going into Wisconsin, the next state. He's got a polling lead there. Dick Gebhardt drops out. Now, it's now mano a mano, Jackson versus Dukakis. And the Washington Democratic establishment class goes into a just full-blown meltdown. And the press coverage from that kind of week and a half after Michigan was just the, the words that they came up to describe the crisis that would befall the party if Jackson was nominated could not be more extreme. So the, the full weight of the party kind of comes down on Jackson. Party turns on him, and by the week and a half later, his, he's fading in Wisconsin, and despite being ahead in the polls, ends up losing in Wisconsin and fades from there. But there was a moment where it looked like a real possibility that the party would go that direction rather than the kind of uh, real Rahm Emanuel corporate direction. What happened in Wisconsin to cause the bottom to drop out? So I think a couple of things. One was the one was the entire party establishment telling voters in very loud voice, very directly, that if, if you nominate Jesse Jackson, not only are we, is the party going to lose in 1988, it's like the end of the Democratic Party. It would be a, a catastrophe of just absolutely epic proportions. So then separately, I think that a lot of progressive white, and progressive in quotes, white Democrats had been happy to vote for Jackson as a protest candidate. But then when it appeared, you know, they wanted to cast their symbolic vote for their black friend. But then when it appeared that he might actually win, they were like, well, wait a minute, you didn't, you know, you didn't tell me that this was a serious run. And so, you know, while they were willing to tell pollsters that they would support him, like when they finally got into the polling booth, when he was on the brink of winning the nomination, they hesitated. One thing I noticed, even like from reading your book from the 80s along to even like to last week, Democrats seem to be seeking Republican approval like it's their absentee dad (laughs) and like they want to please him. Like, why do they have that attitude? You know, I think it's because in the 1980s, they internalized this idea that they live in a, a conservative country, that they live in a kind of center-right country. This is what they're just told all the time. And their experience of living in the minority taught them that that was true. And so that they just can't acknowledge any you know, progressive ideals or else 
or else they're going to be routed like they were by Reagan in the 80s. That makes sense. So with your book, it was everyone, like, it's called uh, We've Got People. Everyone should buy it. It's really riveting. So the most important players include Clintons, but there's another one that many people may not be aware of outside of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. Can you quickly talk about him? Yeah, quickly or at length. Uh, or whatever, just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, I mean, he is in some ways a main character of the book because his career took him to so many places that were useful for the narrative. You know, in the 1980s, you know, he started in 1980 as a 20-year-old volunteer fundraiser for one of APAC's first serious attempts to oust a pro-Palestinian Republican congressman. They failed, but they ended up succeeding two years later um, in 1982. But then Rob Emanuel ends up becoming a staffer for the DCCC, and a kind of protege to Tony Coelho, who was basically the original DCCC chairman. He was the first one in 1980 who said, look, the way we need to respond to Reagan is through this corporate fundraising strategy. By the way, um, um, DCCC, for those who are too young to remember, is Democratic Congressional Something Committee. <laughs> can, yeah, campaign. campaign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And people call it the, the DTRIP for short. And it's the party's arm in charge of electing uh, Democrats. To the, to the House. So after that, he also spent most of the Clinton administration as a staffer there. And so, you know, he was, he was there for all of the kind of various debacles there and left with those particular scars. You know, he go, went into the private sector very briefly, used his connections that he'd made in the Clinton administration, quickly made like $20 million, and then ran for Congress on a pro-war platform in 2002. By 2006, he's the chairman of the DCCC, which he used to work for. And, he, you know, so he oversees the party arm, you know, in this 2006 wave year when, when Democrats take back control of the House. He takes all the credit for it. Closer look shows he doesn't actually deserve it. 2009, he becomes Obama's chief of staff where he, where he kneecaps progress uh, as much as he can from that position and then Two years later, he goes and becomes Chicago mayor, uh, which he just left. It kind of left in his legacy of tatters in, in Chicago. And he's now a political analyst for ABC News, a contributor to The Atlantic, and working uh, for some boutique Wall Street firm. Ah, yes, The Atlantic, the welfare institution for war criminals. It's wonderful. <laughs> for me, the yeah. most shocking part, like, when I first saw Ram was when the nurses were protesting for single payer in 2009, I think, and he called them effing retarded. Excuse me right. for using that word. Yeah, that was, and that was just because that was, that was a slightly different meaning. That was just because some fairly moderate um, progressive groups in Washington uh, were running ads encouraging blue dogs to support Obama's budget. That's all they were doing, and that's what got them called the R word in that meeting. Yeah, that that was his. You know, he's he's famously a tough politician, but that toughness was always aimed exclusively um, at the left. Do you want to talk about the dead fish incident? <laughs> oh yeah, that was kind of funny. So this was <laughs> well, so what, this this became part of his kind of hagiography that he it was. Rom lore that as a staffer at the DCCC, he got into a clash with a pollster, and he blamed this pollster for costing him an election. 
and used this gag company to mail him a dead fish with a note that said, great working with you. Um, you know, dead fish obviously is the, the, the mob symbol for, you know, you're, you're, you're done. You're going to be killed. I thought that um, was a dead horse. Well, well that was in uh, the Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dead fish means you're going to get killed and then cinder blocks tied around your ankles and chucked into the, the Hudson or something. So you're going to sleep with the fishes. Um, so that's where that comes from. But I looked deeper into this legend of Ron, and it turned out just to be petty corruption. The reason he was mad at the pollster is that the pollster had complained to the DCCC that Rom was giving out contracts, DCCC contracts, to his friend rather than doing it in a, in a meritocratic and, and fair bidding fashion. Um, so it was just classic. He was just, guy was just blowing the whistle on some petty graft. And that's what Emmanuel was upset about, uh, which is awfully rich that it has become this like piece of Rahm Emanuel lore. You know, I, I think Felix from Chapo probably is the first guy I heard say this, but Rahm reminds me of one of those guys. It's, it's like he watched all the mafia movies, you know, Goodfellas, and is like, this is what cool guys act like. Yes. This, like, what? it's such a weird Napoleon complex. Yes, I think, yeah, I think that's right, that there's a lot of life imitating art going on, and, you know, that you know that was a big part of the the, the cultural milieu that was influencing him. And now na- nowadays, it's more House of Cards and even Veep, where <laughs> oh, yeah. people people in Washington are kind of mimicking that behavior. Oh my god! But and House of Cards was originally based on the British Parliament. It's like not set in the U.S. Right. <laughs> but. One thing, why does he have a reputation for being a political genius, even though if you look at his win-loss records, it's not that much better than flipping a coin? Well, you know, they're very, you know, he's, he's excellent at promotion, and he has a lot of friends in the media. I mean, look how he skated from the mayor's office to his position at the Atlantic. So, you know, it, it really is just a, it's just a function of his ability to, to kind of self-market. Okay. Um, can we switch over to the master, self-proclaimed master legislator? <laughs> yes, sounds good. Okay, so she's. It, it seems like she was from a very political family in Baltimore, and her main talent was raising money. Um, how did that translate to becoming Speaker of the House? Well, she had a mob-connected dad, right? <laughs> uh, well, the, the FBI file has some mob links in it, that is for sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, most mayors and party bosses of port cities and other, you know, particularly East Coast cities during that time had mob links. Like, they, this was, that was an era where the mob was a serious player economically and politically. And so if you were a boss in the political structure, this, that was, that was going to be part of it. And, but so... So, yeah, so, the, I mean, the, the answer, though, is that quite directly that her kind of legislative mentor, Phil Burton, you know, pioneered the, the practice of raising money into a leadership pack and then using that leadership pack to donate money to your colleagues. This hadn't been thought of before. Donate money to your colleagues to help them win their races, but more importantly, to, to you know, earn chits. And so 
when you then ran for a leadership position down the road, you say, hey, remember how I've been giving you $5,000 a year for the last four years? Could really use your vote in this secret election. What do you have to lose? And as kind of money became the thing that Democrats believed was going to save them from oblivion, somebody who had the ability to raise a lot of it and the willingness to share a lot of it became a very popular person internally. Yeah, um, I can see that, like, I don't know, the disconnect between the Beltway people, like in the everyone in the news media who is like, yes, queen. And then in Michigan, like the Democrats are actually embarrassed of her and they pretend she doesn't exist. Like, I see that difference. Well, she, I mean, in some ways, Democrats get the worst of both worlds because they, the Republicans are happy to, you know, decry her as a, as a San Francisco liberal and a radical, out of touch leftist, but she's not. Like that, that's just it. That's just not an accurate description of her. And so it'd be one thing if you got derided for having a San Francisco radical leftist, and you actually did have a San Francisco radical leftist as a speaker, but and instead they they have a more, much more moderate speaker who comes off as as a leftist in places like Michigan. She comes off more as, like, let-them-eat-cake kind of person, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, yeah. Okay, sorry I'm jumping all over the place because your book was, like, mind-blowing, but can we talk a little bit about Al Gore? You sure, and I actually didn't get a, a ton into, um, into Gore's campaign, but what's interesting about him, you know, in the 90s, there's a chapter in his best-selling book where he basically calls for a Green New Deal. He was far ahead, you know, and, it, you know, and, and he rightfully gets credit for his documentary, Inconvenient Truth, helping to put climate change on the map as a political issue. And it was something he'd been interested in in the 80s and 90s. Yet when... Yeah, when he was in power and when he was running for the White House in 2000, he, you know, he didn't figure out a way to marshal that, that concern into something that he could sell. In 2000, because of the tech bubble, basically, there was a, and uh, some, some Clinton tax hikes that he put in place. So something like a $3 trillion surplus projected over the next decade. And so the big debate in the presidential election was what are we going to do with the surplus? And Gore, to his credits, had talked about shoring up Social Security and that sort of stuff. But he also talked about tax cuts and didn't go anywhere near a Green New Deal. And so, whereas Bush said he was going to just do it all basically as tax cuts, he did. And so what would it have looked like if, if Gore had leaned into what, where his heart really was, which was in, in climate change? So how much of that is the consultant to blame for, like, reining in populist policies from otherwise winnable candidates? The consultants are very much part of this ecosystem that constrains bigger ideas, that says that, you know, these types of left-wing policies just simply won't work, which is why I think it's probably useful that the, in, the, in the long run that the, that the DCCC is barring consultants who work with primary challengers from getting business from the DCCC, because it'll create a new consultant class that's independent of the DCCC and might have more more creative ideas. Isha, you mentioned how <laughs> you kept getting pissed off by stuff you found in the book. I was grinding my teeth for 
most of it too, largely over the Democrats, just total lack of fighting instinct. Like what's going on there? I mean, even in a purely partisan sense, even if it's not a progressive thing, even if it's just purely Republicans versus Democrats over and over, Democrats just seem to roll over. Yeah, I think, I think they're just afraid that if the public sees them fighting for anything progressive, that the public will reject them. It's, I think it's, it's this weird trauma that's just holding over from the Reagan era. That is so bizarre because the economy has changed and the reality has changed. But so we just have to get rid of Reagan era Democrats. <laughs> yeah, there you well, go. But also, like these Democrats, like the people from their districts elected them. They didn't elect Mitch McConnell. Like, why would you roll over for him? Like, you know, like. And what's interesting is that of the two Reagan era Democrats in the presidential campaign who are not infected by that fear and trauma um, and are running much more fearless campaigns, both of them had, for their own unique reasons, really no reason to, like, be personally invested in in the fortunes of the Democratic Party per se in the 1980s. You know, Bernie Sanders was an independent who thought that the Democratic Party was too weak, and that's why it wasn't able to stand up to Reagan. And Elizabeth Warren was even a registered Republican at some points in the 80s. She voted for Carter and, and then voted for Mondale, not Reagan, but, but she didn't care a ton. Like when Reagan was elected, she was like, oh, that's a shame. He seems like a jerk, but whatever. You know, she was an infrequent voter. She was barely paying attention to politics. And so the rejection of the Democratic Party that people like Pelosi and Hoyer and Schumer felt so deeply as a personal rejection, neither Sanders nor Warren really felt that. And they, their battles have much more often been with Democrats. One question. So Obama had in the beginning, like a grassroots organization called OFA. But mm-hmm. how did he deal with it? And how did that affect the Democratic Party? Yeah, that was a huge moment when right after uh, President Obama's election, or Obama's election to president, instead of bringing that energy and that huge grassroots movement into Washington and pushing blue dogs and pushing moderate Republicans to get on board for his agenda at this moment of crisis for the country, uh, he shut it down. And he shut down outside progressive groups, too, and told them, don't push the blue dogs, don't push Republicans, and just make them mad, and it could cost, you know, cost the blue dogs re-election in 2010. We've got this. You know, we're going to sit down and we're going to negotiate with them, and that that turned out to be a strategic mistake. Especially when, maybe you should tell people who are too young to remember how the Congress looked in 2009. Right. So, they, you know, they, they came in with 58 senators off the bat. Um, eventually, Arlen Specter switched parties and gives them 59. And then eventually, uh, Al Franken joins after a recount in like June, July, gives them 60, which is a filibuster-proof majority. And... That's another example of how Republicans are willing to fight for every inch. Uh, they, they knew they were going to lose that recount in Minnesota with Al Franken, but they spent millions to keep fighting the recount anyway because they knew that every day that they could keep Al Franken out of the Senate was a day that Democrats didn't have that 60-vote supermajority. And then by January, they've lost it. How? Because uh, Scott Brown, like, so Ted Kennedy dies. Oh, I see. Um, and is replaced. But, uh, Scott Brown, right? 
Well, but yeah, by somebody actually who had beaten Nancy Pelosi in I think the 1984 DNC chair race. It, it was a uh, chief of staff to Ted Kennedy, and then there's a special election, and, and Scott Brown wins. Also, it only takes 51 votes to nuke a filibuster. Why did they not think about that? Because, well, they don't. They don't have the votes for it. You'd have to have 50 senators on board to get rid of the filibuster, and they, and they didn't have that. The Senate is a very prideful institution, and it took Harry Reid until 2013 just to get uh, enough buy-in to change it on judges below the Supreme Court. A quicker thing they could have done was to put climate change or other big policy moves in reconciliation, that, which only requires 50 votes. That's what uh, Republicans did for the Affordable Care Act and for, for the tax cuts. And Democrats even refused to do that. Why don't you tell people how to find your book and how to find you on social media? Yeah, so the book is called We've Got People, uh, from Jesse Jackson to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The End of Big Money and the Rise of the Movement, published by Strong Arm Press. You can find it on evil Amazon. Um, but you can also call your local bookstore, ask if they have it. If they don't, tell them to get it. Call your library. If they don't have it, tell them to get it. Even if you bought it already, call your library and tell them to get it so somebody else can read it for free. I'll be in Los Angeles soon for some events, in San Francisco for some events, and I'll be in Salt Lake City of all places. If you want to learn more about those, you can. You know, I'll be updating on Twitter, which is at Ryan Grimm, or sign up for my newsletter and I'll let people know about the events there. That's badnews.substack.com. Newsletter is called Bad News. So that's about all the plugs I can think of. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I do recommend everyone listen to this book. Absolutely. It's a fantastic read. Thanks a lot for your time, Ryan. And thank you guys so much. Have a great day. You too. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.